Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from Business in Vancouver and BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, we have a deal. Carlo Dade from the Canada West Foundation discusses the new North American trade agreement, which was agreed to in the U.S. in principle today. And our final tech panel of the year, Linda Fawkes and Owen Ingram join the show a little later on to talk about the trends and events that define technology in 2019. First, tickets are now available for BIV's 40 Under 40 Awards Gala. Join us January 30th at the Westin Bayshore as we celebrate young entrepreneurs, professionals, and executives from a wide range of sectors in BC. Profiles of this year's cohort are now available online, and tickets are available at BIV.com events. On February 4th, a conversation with UK Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham, also BC's former Privacy Commissioner. She'll be joining our Editor-in-Chief Kirk Lapointe to talk about privacy going mainstream, the ethical implications of AI, and on holding multinational corporations to account for privacy and data breaches. It's a conversation you won't want to miss. For tickets and information, visit BIV.com events. Here's our show. Congress and the White House administration have reached a deal to approve a new North American trade pact. Carlo Dade, director of the Canada West Foundation's Trade and Investment Center, joins me on the line now to walk through the latest news. Carlo, welcome back to the show, and thanks so much, as always, for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, and thanks for referring to it as the new North American trade agreement. Is that the right way to look at this? Tell me what the, what the new deal includes and what is substantially different. Well, actually, this is a half joke and half serious. Uh, in Canada, we're urging people to, to, to use the term the new North American agreement. Essentially, when you look at the numbers, the modeling that's been done, you look at the substance of what's been added to and taken away from the agreement. Really, this was, in effect, a, a political show uh, by the Trump administration. There have been rising anger over trade in the U.S., the president ran on the issue. The Clinton, uh, Secretary Clinton also did to some degree. So this was partially a political show to um, assuage uh, that anger or that concern over trade in the U.S. But again, the economic modeling that's been done, both by Dan Chiriak, who does modeling for us at Canada West, and his C.D. Howe report, showed net welfare losses from the agreement. The U.S. International Trade Commission, the Department of Commerce group tasked by Congress with uh, reviewing agreements, found only very, very modest gains, and those only came about because the U.S. ITC suddenly decided to start modeling the impact of a reduction in uncertainty around digital trade. Hmm. That's about as far into the back of the closet as you can go to try and find a benefit. So, you know, looking at that, um, we're lucky to have an agreement. Uh, We're better off with an agreement than without. That's the bottom line. So we have, of course, now that there's this new agreement in place, a reduction in some uncertainty. But in what ways does it perhaps introduce new uncertainty? Sure. Well, the the agreement doesn't so much introduce new uncertainty as it makes us forget or not pay attention to the larger uncertainty that continues to hang 
over North American trade that threatens every business. I don't want to overstate the case, but it's a real danger for any firm that has integrated supply and production chains or depends on moving goods or people back and forth across the border. We saw a bit of this with the steel and aluminum tariffs, the president using powers delegated to him by Congress to declare that lack of production of steel in the U.S. was a threat to U.S. security, and then to turn around and impose uh, tariffs on Canada, Mexico, and other countries. That use of those tariffs is not the only thing the president can do, and it's not the worst of what he could do. There are five or six similar statutes where the president has power to unilaterally ignore rules of trade and to impose tariffs, restrict uh, movement of goods, seize assets, and other things. And we've only seen, I would say, the, the, the more moderate uh, of, of these powers by the president. Uh, he's threatened worse with Mexico. And when he did, the Mexican peso plunged and Mexico was in a crisis. So this new North American agreement does next to nothing, not nothing, but next to nothing, to really protect the wider Canadian economy outside of the automobile industry from that threat. What would be a worst case potential scenario for Canada, given some of these new areas of authority for the president? Sure. So the, the authorities actually go back to like the 1930s with the Trading with the Enemy Act. And uh, Canadians are shut up trading with the Enemy Act. That was the War of 1812 would be the last time we could be subject to that. But no, in the 1970s, President Nixon used powers under the Trading with the Enemy Act to declare a 10% surcharge on all imports coming into the U.S. Canada was hit with that. This past summer in May, the president threatened across the board tariffs on all goods coming into the U.S. from Mexico of 5 to 25%. He did that uh, overnight. Uh, we woke up one morning. The president used his powers under the International Economic uh, IE PPA to declare an emergency um, on the U.S. southern border. And as a result, he used his IEEPA powers to threaten Mexico with a tariff that would start instantly. So there is a lot that the president can do. Um, and even if the president doesn't declare the tariffs, the mere fact that he would threaten to do so, as he did with Mexico, sent the Mexico peso plunging and put Mexico into crisis. He could very easily do um, something similar with uh, any country um, including Canada. And so if we see something like that happen, what are Canada's options? How might we be able to respond or what mechanisms might be in place for us to respond? Unfortunately, we don't have votes in Congress to try and overturn <laughs> the action. And Congress has shown no willingness uh, to do this. Our only option is to continue the same sort of outreach and advocacy efforts we've had in the U.S., for the new North American agreement, but to make those almost a permanent part of our engagement, a permanent cost of doing business in the U.S. This means supporting premiers to continue to go down to visit governors and to attend meetings with their counterparts. It's not just Washington State or Washington, D.C. 
it's the states where we have the ability to get in with local chambers of Congress, with constituents of, of congressmen, to make the case that trade with Canada is important and to have our allies in the states speak for us and either mitigate, forestall, or try and even prevent um, president taking unilateral actions or to simply exempt Canada from actions that are taken. Well, you mentioned too, one of the kind of tricky things here is, is that it's the mere threat at times that can cause a lot of economic impact that brings about a lot of uncertainty for businesses, regardless of whether that threat is actually followed up upon. What do you think this means for businesses trying to operate in this kind of environment, and even beyond that, trying to strategize and plan several years in advance. What's some of your advice for Canadian businesses? Sure. So we can operate in, in fear, but neither can we have our heads in the sand and pretend that this doesn't exist. There are sort of prudent, uh, non-alarmist measures that can be taken. Looking at supply and production chains, figuring out where you're vulnerable, paying attention in regards to that analysis when the president announces that he's going to launch a investigation, which can take months to year, uh, up to a year, as to whether or not a product you trade or depend on for your supply and production chains should be, say, a national security uh, threat to, to the U.S. Pay attention when the president, um, there's talk of you know, uh, protection measures, surge protection measures in the U.S., also, think through retaliatory tariffs. Even if your product is not the subject of a tariff action like steel and aluminum, you could wind up like folks in the pizza industry, suddenly dragged in when your goods are bought up as a retaliatory tariff by Canada or a retaliatory tariff by the U.S. to retaliatory tariffs uh, from Canada. Those retaliatory tariffs are fairly easy to figure out. Retaliatory terrorists aren't rocket science, they're sadism. And it's fairly easy to figure out that if there's a tariff, if there's a tip between Canada and the U.S. and you're importing bourbon from the U.S., it's not hard to figure out that you're going to wind up on the retaliatory tariff list. So thinking through those things can go a long way. But really, talking with your suppliers and your partners in the U.S., to try and forestall this or to make sure that they're thinking about asking for exemptions uh, for the things you trade are the best things that we can do. Do you think Canadians need to rethink or even perhaps reprice U.S. trade risk? Absolutely. That, that's a great point. Um, these issues, even though we've seen the Americans occasionally use these measures before, we haven't seen the president use them with the frequency and the impulsiveness of the current one. This is a major change, and we certainly do need to rethink risk, and we need to rethink how we help uh, Canadian firms that face uh, threats from the sort of risk uh, from the U.S. Looking ahead to 2020, we, of course, have the U.S. presidential election. Any sense on whether that election will perhaps intensify trade issues or whether it might mean we're safe, we're out of the spotlight for a period of time here in Canada and there might be fewer trade actions. What kind of a sense do you have around that? Well, on, on the macro sense, I would think that, yes, um, the U.S. has plenty of other things about which to worry. China, um, Mexico is, is more of a concern than are we generally in North America. But on the other hand, 
we've seen rational analysis attempts to judge U.S. action by following their rational self-interest not prove to be a guide for what President Trump does. So these powers that have been inherent, the five or six statutes that give the president the authority to impose tariffs or to block trade, become more of a concern when you have a president that acts this impulsively in an administration that doesn't have these sort of policymaking um, constraints or, or normal best practices. So, you know, it could pop up at any time. Um, cattle ranchers in the U.S. getting upset. With dairy farmers in Wisconsin getting the president's ear. The fact that our trade um, surplus with the U.S. is growing. Any of these things could uh, trigger actions. So, again, prudent steps, not alarm, not fear, but prudent steps to prepare for what is now a very real uh, business contingency. Carlo, thanks so much for your insight on this, and thanks for joining the show throughout 2019. Hey, my pleasure. That's Carlo Dade, director of the Canada West Foundation's Trade and Investment Centre. It's time now for our final BIV Tech Panel of 2019. Joining me in studio, Linda Faucus, CEO of Glue Technology Society, and Owen Ingram, CTO at Easy Market. Thank you both for coming on. Hi, guys. Hello, hello. We have so much to talk about. We're going to take a look back at the trends that shaped technology in 2019. Linda, why don't you get the ball rolling? What's one headline trend that you saw this year? Data breaches, data surveillance, and augmentation. I think those were big for me. Humans becoming truly augmented and, and living connected to our digital lives, to our digital selves through phones, wearables, maybe smart home tech. Um, that that was huge for me. And, and it came home to me personally because this is the first year in 30 years I've ever worn a watch and it's an Apple watch. So that really came home to me. And why did I do that? To augment my mother because she's 87 and she needs a little augmentation. Don't we all? And then the data <laughs> breach side, the data record side, these billions of records being stolen, the 28 million records in Canada being stolen, 39 million and a half Canadians, by the way. So this now is roosting at home. This means we are on the dark web. What are we going to do about it? What does it mean for us? So those were the two big personal ones that hit me this year. And I think it speaks to just how much of our lives are now on digital. Oh, and everyone is on their phone, it seems like. Yeah, <clears throat> seeing that trend go up and up. I think it's, it's you know, in one year, it's hard to see it. But over the last few years, uh, like on the SkyTrain, we see 100% of people who aren't sleeping on their phone. Um, and so it's... Uh, if you had taken someone from 2000 and shown them this picture, they would have been shocked. But, you know, because it's been slow growing, uh, people don't people aren't taken back by it. But we are definitely in the age now where we're augmented. It's our personal assistant sitting there. We're doing work or playing games, socializing all in the SkyTrain. Mm -hmm. What are some of the big trends that jumped out to you? Yeah, for me, similar with the augmentation. Um, and I think that's what's interesting to me is it's picking up the pace. Um, and so we're seeing a few tech breakthroughs underlying it with uh, the hardware that's uh, uh, coming out with um, kind of breaking what's called Moore's Law. Um, there's a few solutions to that with uh, at the hardware level. So we're going to see more and more wearables and lighter tech. Um, so that's kind of the thing that's actually pushing it probably the most is now we can have cheap-ish technology, although the Apple Watch isn't that cheap, but cheaper technology to give us an augmented reality. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that we're finally starting to see what this tech can do. I mean, we knew you know, Siri's been around a long time, voice assistants have been around a long time, but when you start to understand that you can offload a lot of your like to-do lists, reminders, calendars, um, all of those things to a device that you can rely on to remind you, you don't have to have that data circulating around in your head, clogging up your your smart thoughts. So it's interesting to me that people are starting to see what's possible for them and carving out their own experience with all this tech that's hitting them at home and at work and in our environments and look out for it, right? When we hit 5G and our cities are connected and we are, you know, dealing with the objects, the nouns in our life that are all connected to the internet, that is going to be very seriously a game changer. And that's a now thing. 5G is really being tested and worked on now. And those apps and devices are going to be hitting us in the next few years. Yeah, it's hard to see what game changers will come out of 5G. But similar to when we moved from, you know, just doing uh, the LT9 text messaging into having, you know, video streaming to our phones. With 5G, we could get uh, a level of data and a level of AI that we could actually have these smart messaging uh, happen, uh, you know, within our thoughts. So this is, for example, right now in Google, uh, it's starting to complete my sentences when I write an email. And it actually kind of sounds like me. Uh, maybe I just speak very uh, robotically, but very googly. Yeah, but uh, that that's actually really exciting to me because if <clears throat> similar to the calculator, if it can start, if I can start to offload some of my uh, processing into the computer and really just be the navigator of these things, uh, that's where five G could hit home as you're walking around, especially with wearables. Absolutely. This is a province, uh, that, a country where we don't have broadband everywhere, and we certainly know that five G is going to be highly localized. So it'll be quite something to see where people choose to live. I'm guessing the younger generation is not going to want to live outside of a 5G area once that becomes normal for us. Yeah, they're going to have to start buying the maps again from the 7-Eleven and figuring out where they are. (laughs) Impossible. (laughs) Who knows how to use a map now, right? That's not digital or an app form. It doesn't fit in your pocket. Where does it go? Where's North? (laughs) All these important life skills that we've lost. Uh, it was mentioned data and privacy, a huge trend and issue that we saw in 2019 and years past, but it really feels like that's something that we're hearing more and more of. It's a big concern. Are we any closer to figuring out how to properly protect our identities online, how to protect data, who owns data? What do you think, Owen? Yeah, we've had a lot of uh, influential listeners, obviously, with the changes <laughs> that have happened lately coming from our suggestions. But we, you know, we've, we've talked about this a lot with uh, having... The need for technical leadership in the government with powers to uh, authorize, you know, market blocking policies that can actually require, um, you know, a a level of standard, not just in the actual technology, but in the policies around the technology. Um, Because it's not always, it's actually not ever the technology's fault. It's obviously the users of these technology um, uh, tragedies like the Boeing th- uh, 737 MAX, um, it, it's not just the tech, it's the whole framework, how we test things, how we regulate it. We need to take it way more seriously um, because we've always been a step behind. And it's really sad because we've, we've lost a lot of uh, trust in, uh, you know, in the technical abilities of our you know, very genius uh, citizens that are trying to push this forward. And yeah, it's, it's just a win-win to have an actual technical leader in the government that can, um, our leadership body that can actually do change. Yeah, and it's time. I mean, we've had a, a free run for a decade or so. It's now time to get some serious frameworks in place. The contract for the web is an interesting start from Sir Tim Berners-Lee mm-hmm. Web Foundation. Um, that's an interesting, perhaps, beginning of the conversation. But we need governments 
to regulate what is going on here. We can't be leaving this to the for-profit companies like Facebook and Google and Apple and Microsoft and everybody. Um, so that we, as citizens of countries and citizens of the world, we have a say in what's happening and we don't have to be constantly on top of our own data. It's really hard to track what's going on with you, your digital self. It's really, perhaps one could say, intentionally difficult to do. Um, and so while that is a difficult piece and then we are, our digital selves are propagating all over the world and we don't know really know what's going on with the data that's being collected, where is it going to be bought, sold or shared? The sale of Fitbit to Google is an interesting example of that health data piece. Google promising not to use it. Well, I don't really want to live in the world where I have to rely on promises too often anyway. So we need to get regulation in so that we as citizens of this global world can understand where our lines are. And by the way, we're horrible at this, right? We all went and gave our stuff to Facebook and Google and all that very happily as users of free services. And when I say in every speech, I do the speech, it seems like hundreds of times a year, but I say... Um, you know, it's not free. You're paying a high price for it. And and the, the looks I get are quite interesting. A lot of people I see are like, that's okay. Because they don't understand what that means to have their data floating around, bought, sold, and used. Yeah, the dollar a... that's coming out of the wallet and for a lot of these people is the most important variable. And, and that's, that's difficult. That's why we need regulation. We need to almost protect people from themselves. Yeah, <clears throat> there's a few angles that we can take from a government side. I, the best case scenario would be having the data uh, somewhat uh, collected or centralized, you know, within government bodies or uh, uh, different groups that you can license that data out. Uh, I don't, I don't think we'll get there anytime soon. But just generally having rules around the requirements, uh, like the real prescriptive requirements around how the data is stored and transmitted. Uh, we've already started this process with medical data and credit card data. We just need to extend this out. Um, and it's really a public perception about exactly what you said. They, they don't understand that it's a value. There's a currency that they have with their data. And, uh, and we need to realize, you know, this is something we should protect. Yeah. And then we also see the example, say, of TikTok this year, where we've got an app created in China collecting a, a great deal of data on its hundreds of millions of users. And the U.S. government saying, whoa, hold on. What are you going to do with all that data? So here we are as citizens of North America, living in North America, but perhaps having the apps that we bring into our life, augmenting the AI data sets for another country that might not have our best interests at heart. We don't know. But it's an interesting time. It's, it's basically an app by app decision we're making as consumers. What apps are we going to participate in? And when we participate today in an app, that means you're doing a data exchange probably, right? Like there's no, how many apps are there in the app store that don't care about your data? Not a whole lot. Right. I think, unfortunately, probably what's going to happen is, um, you know, like Plato says, the uh, 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 necessity is the mother of invention. Um, I think people are going to get burned uh, more and more. The public shaming on Twitter and, uh, you know, the uh, lost jobs because of something you posted on your personal Facebook or WhatsApp group. Um, that's going to continue until enough people have been burned that there's a uh, there's a public awareness of how serious it is to consider if TikTok is in China, you know, that there's a another level of data privacy you have to consider. Um, 
Yeah, I think unfortunately the way we work uh, probably is similar with climate change until it really hits home. You know, we don't really jump into action. Exactly. I was thinking about that on the way in. And we've had, what, 50 or 60 years of debate on climate change, scientific facts circulating around showing us climate change is a scientific fact. This isn't a myth. It's not something that's going to pass over. We have to do something about it. We don't have that kind of time scale here. We don't have 50 or 60 years to figure out how we might manage our data on this thing called the web or the internet or our connected life. We, we got to work now. And so you're right. We need smart people like Owen in the government helping them understand <laughs> what's going on. How are we locking it down and giving, our, giving us controls over it? And then the other piece to that, though, is these AI machines that are being built, these data sets that are being built, you know, Google investing $3 billion a year in their AI, uh, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, et cetera, all hovering around a billion. China's putting in $30 billion. A year. So, so what we need to understand is how do we want our AI that's helping our democratized nations run? Because we know AI is going to start running them, right? These machines that we're using, it's not true AI, it's machine learning, but this is going to really drive economies forward. And so how are we providing our AI with the fuel it needs to grow? When we can't, you know, if we restrict a lot of that data, it's difficult for these companies who are creating AI to grow a smart AI, right? Where China's, we know, not restricting really any of the data. And it's coming from millions of points on a consumer's life, a person's life in China. So that's a balance I think will be interesting to see how we, um, how we balance that. How are we willing to support the AIs that we're developing and keep them friendly to our beliefs and our, our um, structure of our lives as we know them in a, in a democracy? And how are we going to challenge the AIs that are thriving like China's? Yeah, and on the same topic about the 5G, the AI, we don't really know exactly the level of interaction we're going to have with it. Uh, it's just starting to bubble up, but we can follow the money, exactly what you said about the billions of dollars getting put into it. Um, is also also the resources, the uh, brightest minds being handpicked for those projects. Um, and so, yeah, it, it has yet to be seen uh, how much of an impact it is, but we know it's important just by following the money. And uh, we definitely need more people like Linda doing their hundreds of speeches a year about <laughs> these types of topics. I'll keep going. <laughs> yeah. Saying the same thing over and over, protect yourself. <laughs> Underscoring all of this is that regulatory piece, as we mentioned, whether it comes to AI or whether it's on data and privacy. And you can also look at more globally this idea of regulating big tech. In 2019, we saw a lot of calls from various U.S. lawmakers to break up these massive monopolies that own a lot of data. There have also been a number of walkouts of workers who want more rights and protections from a labor point of view. Do you think, Owen, that any of these issues are going to come to a head in 2020? Do we see them intensify over the next year? Yeah, absolutely. There's no way to look at our economy and not see the centralization of wealth, uh, GDP increasing while the uh, gap widening. So that, we, we know this very well from human history, what happens. Uh, it goes to a breaking point and the proletarians uh, rise up. Uh, but it will happen uh, one way or the other. I would like to do a preventative measure, uh, you know, from the government. Um, that would include actually supporting your fellow citizen with uh, their strikes, even if you don't necessarily agree with it. We do need to probably see the, re the uh, reinvigorating of unions as we see the automation start to push out more and more work. Uh, because long term, it's great. But you know, the short term, it's a lot of displacement for people. Uh, retraining is very difficult, especially if you've been, you know, in a job where um, there's a manual labor aspect to it. 
Um, and so we have to really think about that as far as what's fair. And I think what's fair is uh, in a democracy, it's a you know, distribution of wealth and just a, f- a fairness to that. So um, I see that continuing to grow. Um, and it's going to happen fast because people don't like to be uncomfortable. If, these, if we see our salaries stagnate, uh, well, you know, every, uh, there's companies that get, getting very wealthy. Um, people get upset, you know, and we've seen it before. We used to guilty people. Obviously, we're not going to go that far, but there is, you know, a, a, a breaking point where all of a sudden society does a big change. So um, having a little bit of uh, pressure released through uh, rising base salaries or, um, you know, just being aware of uh, how much money you're contributing to a company and your value is very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and understanding and, and having some regulation around how these companies are using their human workers. Because we are very happy to get one day shipping from Amazon and super fast, cheap service uh, food delivery from Grubhub or Uber Eats or whatever. Um, we often, as a consumer, we're not looking at the the, um, the human side of that. What, what is it like to work in an Amazon warehouse? How is that? What are we What are we doing when Uber Eats and Grubhub steals the tips from the drivers who are dropping off our food? So I don't want to think about that every time I go to get a one-day shipping parcel or I have my groceries delivered for me. I want the companies to be forced into a business model that respects the humans that are making, by the way, their bottom line for their shareholders. And we know we've got a lot of desperate people who will take really low-paying jobs and just kind of get any money they can to live in a society that's becoming more expensive. But what we also see is these companies aren't stepping up. They're not caring about these workers. These strikes are happening for good reasons. And so we do need to support them definitely online for whatever online petition or tweeting or whatever you want to do to participate, but also understand how your impact is um, being felt on those humans. Is your tip making it to their pocket? And if it's not, maybe that's a good use for the coins that are collecting dust in our houses because we can't use cash anymore. (laughs) Um, But we, so we need to be aware of what's going on, but I want to see the the in, the companies forced into a better model because this is becoming a little creepy. Yeah, and it, these companies are doing very well. I think it's up to us to help the, guide the corporations in this because uh, you know they don't want to destroy the middle class either. They're just trying to um, fulfill their obligation to you know generate uh, wealth and add value. So uh, what, how we guide them is uh, you know being aware of it. Um, but there's a there's a bigger factor at play, which is just uh, these companies are accelerating faster and faster. They're, we're breaking records every year about how fast a tech company gets adoption. They get up to half a billion users. Uh, they're you know they're they're evaluated at a billion dollars after a year. So it's not like there's there's so much wealth. There's actually an abundance here. We're talking about uh, uh, figuring out a business model in abundance, which is a great situation to be in. Um, and so, you know, it's up to us to guide uh, corporations. Corporations are there to make money and the government's there to make the corporations be valuable to us. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a, I think there's a paradigm shift that we haven't grasped yet that um, we're in control of the situation as citizens. We are in a democracy. Uh, we can do whatever we like. Uh, we actually want to foster these corporations to be successful and us ride the success with them. Um, and so I don't see that, you know, when I talk to people, they feel like they're trapped or they're a victim of this system, but we have all the control. We just need to actually vote and be aware and vocal of, of yeah. what we need to do. I think we've just been driving with our hands off the wheel too long. It's like time to put them back on and decide where we're going to go and perhaps watch The Irishman on Netflix to see what it looks like to create a union and hopefully <laughs> oh, this yeah, one yeah. doesn't end as bad. <laughs> oh, very <Yeah>. educational film. <laughs> 
with lots of nominations for awards. Um, Libra was a big story in 2019, too, so I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention that. What do you think we're going to see come of Libra and these efforts to create this global philanthropic, altruistic, I say that in air quotes, cryptocurrency for use by everyday people? What happens next year? I think we see more Libra style currencies come out from the companies we're dealing with. I think Mm -hmm. Facebook jumped in first. Google is going to head there. Amazon's going to head there. We know that. So I think we see more of a conversation around how we're going to move our society away from straight up fiat currencies to a more globalized, less expensive, easy to transfer money around the world system. And and who rules that? Is it the Libra Foundation? Is it someone else? I'm guessing there's going to be a whole bunch of them. We're not going to just have one, thank goodness. Um, and, And also it looks like Europe is going to push back hard, France and Germany specifically. Not yeah. going to allow them in, afraid of destabilization, and probably the U.S. will follow. So right. go, for can- me, go Canada. Yeah, and that was a big signal, actually, for me. It was uh, I was always curious. The cryptocurrencies, I felt, like never really had a, a strong um, signal for me that it was going to stick around. A, it's still sticking around. has a market cap of however many billions. But the big one was once... Once it actually was a real threat uh, from the economists that can study these things very deeply, uh, we would see uh, opposition to it. So now that Europe is opposing it, now we know it's a real thing, mm-hmm. um, it's, which is kind of counterintuitive. But uh, because of the opposition we're seeing, um, they, I think that this is actually going to be an opportunity for um, Bitcoin and all the rest of it as a store of wealth to uh, solidify themselves, hopefully stabilize themselves, and then... If all things go well, this could be a good thing. For right now, of course, as we know, cryptocurrencies um, isn't necessarily a, a real positive thing just because of nefarious activities. But it definitely has the opportunity, uh, as we've talked about before, to reach people who need to get banked and, and, and want to get out of the thumb of uh, you know a few providers that uh, they're transferring cash through. Um, yeah, so there's a really good positive potential to it. Final takes, either on trends that define 2019 or trends that might define 2020. Owen, I'll start with you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Tesla is so fun to watch. Uh, You know, obviously the Cybertruck, but I got to test drive a Tesla in 2019. And, you know, it immediately got onto my bucket list. I have a very short bucket list in my life. uh, And uh, (laughs) it's on there now. Uh, The insanity mode was insane. It was was a thrill. And then the autopilot. Um, I would love to see that. Uh, get get used so that uh, we can see generations of people doing really high value quality work um, instead of you know doing long haul uh, trucking. Not anything against long haul trucking, but uh, w- with the right tech, uh, I would like to see these people you know do the harder maneuvers in the warehouse and the things that are complicated where their skills are used as opposed to the long more uh, mundane work. Um, so I really think of it as a positive thing and, and I hope other people can see it that way as well. It is painful in the short term, but yeah, long term, I would love to see the humanity, uh, you know, live in abundance, um, from all the wealth that's generated by this type of automation. Yeah. Well put Linda. I really liked the, I like Aug- AI augmented Linda. She's smart. <laughs> She's, really, I, she's so great. She I want so much more of her. I'm not quite ready to embed it underneath my mm-hmm. skull yet. I could hide it in my hair, perhaps. But I'm really, I'm really liking the apps that are starting to use AI to learn 
how I speak maybe to reply to emails or how Mm -hmm. my schedule should be organized or things I'm about to do. So that just launched into my life this year with a few of the apps that I use, sort of starting to test this AI piece. I I turned the option on quite hesitantly because I know that this is a data collection moment. So I was thoughtful about what companies I'm using to do that with. I turned a couple off. I was like, I don't want that particular email app knowing that about me. So it got deleted. But um, that I think I'm excited about that. I think that's going to make life flow much smarter. And I believe truly believe that AI is going to complement human life in a really nice way. We're not we're we're not going to it's not going to take over the planet building paper clips or calculating pi. That's a a future scenario that's probably never going to happen. But this machine learning piece we're starting to live with. I'm excited for that to make smarter Linda smarter. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, I want smarter Haley too in 2020. It's a good resolution. Definitely future Linda is going to be smarter. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it has been really enjoyable and insightful having you both on the show throughout the year. Thanks so much for coming in one last time and for coming in throughout 2019. Have a great celebration on New Year's, people. Yes, happy holidays. Yeah, cheers to you guys. That's Owen Ingram, CTO at Easy Market, and Linda Faucus, CEO of Glue Technology Society. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also listen to our episodes on Spotify and at BIV.com slash audio. I'm Haley Wooden. This is my last podcast for 2019, but the show will be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.